Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us for this special live edition of the 2 o'clock Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, Like the people I'm about to introduce on our panel today, I've had very little sleep. I'm getting a bit giddy. I'm going to try to keep getting too silly on this show because there are very important matters uh, to talk about. And with that in mind, let's get right to the panel and begin our conversation. Shannon McCaffrey is back with us. She's an AJC political reporter. And Shannon, you, of course, have spent... Uh, most of this campaign season covering the uh, U.S. Senate race. And uh, you were thinking about that Thanksgiving dinner? Well, forget about it, Shannon, because you now have a runoff to cover as well. Yeah, the, the good news is it will be done before Christmas break. Um, so so that, that is, that is the, the positive spin I'm trying to put on this. Okay, well, thank you for being with us today. Um, we do know, now know that this race is uh, going to do, uh, going to go to a runoff. Um, We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, We're glad to be joined again by Emma Hurt, uh, Axios Atlanta reporter. Hi, Emma. Were you at an election uh, headquarters or a a party last night? Shannon and I were at Walker, but I was basically jogging back and forth across the battery uh, every every hour or so to check in on Kemp World as well. Maya King and I of the New York Times were were working just jogging back and forth half the night. So we got our steps in. <laughs> yeah, the work of a political reporter on an election night. Renee Alegria is back with us as well. He is the CEO of Mundo Now. It used to be called Mundo Hispanico, but after rebranding, we now introduce him as Mundo Now. Hi, Renee. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Bill. It's all very exciting. Uh, yeah, I'm a giddy too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And Alan Abramowitz, uh, a, a, a professor emeritus of political science at Emory University. You know, Alan, I, more than ever, I think about the fact that you were the person who, back a number of years ago, coined the phrase negative partisanship and told us what it meant. And what you told us was that politics had become all about hating the other side, not just having disagreements over issues and philosophy. And you were so prophetic in that, Alan. Well, I, I'm sort of um, sad that it came, turned out to be not only true, but that things have gotten a lot worse uh, since then. I mean, I think there's no question that, uh, particularly since the rise of Donald Trump, that the phenomenon of negative partisanship has only intensified. And, and Shannon, we certainly saw that play out in an intense way in the um, Senate race between Warnock and Walker. Uh, as I said, we now know that race will definitely go to a runoff. As of this moment, uh, with only about 20,000 votes left to be counted, Warnock has a 35,000-vote lead over Herschel Walker, um, but he's at 49.4%. He cannot get over the 50% 
threshold, and neither for that matter who's at 48.5 can uh, Herschel Walker. Uh, Shannon, uh, start giving us some feedback about this, some thoughts about what's happening. Well, one thing that is interesting about this is that, you know, for us, we, we've, we've really been critical of polls over the years, but the, the polls on this were pretty right. I mean, they, they called they called that this would be with, you know, neither of them could quite get above 50. Um, you know, the libertarian got a little bit less than than was expected. But, you know, the two candidates are, are pretty well neck and neck. I mean, they're separated right now by I think it's about it's less than one percentage point. Um, and, you know, I, I the far more interesting number that I see, though, compared to Warnock and, and Walker is Walker and Kemp. Uh, Kemp got, mm-hmm. and I, I know we'll get into that later, but I think it, Kemp got about 200,000 more votes than Walker. Um, and, you know, when, when you look forward to a runoff, are those voters going to come back out for Herschel Walker? Um, I think that's unlikely. So he's going to have to do some work there to get those voters back out. You know, that's a really interesting point. Uh, Renee, uh, it, uh, Shannon's exactly right. Um, uh, Walker underperformed Brian Kemp by 203,000 votes. And not only did he underperform uh, Governor Kemp, he underperformed virtually every other Republican on the statewide uh, uh, ballot. So um, Shannon may be right. He's got a lot to do to catch up in a runoff. Yeah, I, I think that the split ticket voting um, yesterday around the country really was a, a story everybody was talking about. You know, who was going up, uh, running ahead of the incumbent, behind the incumbent, governor, House, Senate. Uh, it was really interesting to see that split ticket vote wash through uh, Georgia. Right. I mean, and it, it was it was evidenced. Um, so so clearly, right? I mean, with a popular governor incumbent doing his thing, running a strong uh, campaign, um, and one one thing also that struck struck me uh, was the term uh, candidate quality matters. You hear a lot of folks talking about that today, right? As though uh, as though it's something new, um, which I find also a bit funny. But still, it's really playing out across the country. Um, was Walker uh, subpar in the candidate quality matters column? Uh, a lot of people would say yes, and as a result, he's trailing by as little as he is. Um, so, yeah. Emma, and then Alan? There's so much going on um, in in this, how this Senate race is is so separate, it seems, from the other constitutional offices. Um, I think that 200,000 vote um, difference between Kemp and Walker that Shannon mentioned is key. There's also, you know, voters that dropped off in the Senate race, something like 17, 18,000 who skipped it. Um, the Libertarian got a lot more votes in the Senate race than in the governor's race. All these things um, not occurring to Herschel Walker's benefit, but that being said, Again, this is neck and neck still, and I think the Walker campaign um, feels feels good that they were outraised, um, outspent, and are still very much in the game here. And um, and the question becomes, you know, in this new four week runoff turnaround with probably one week of early voting, um, with Thanksgiving 
But, you know, so many unknown factors. Former President Trump, does he announce a 2024 bid? How does that play? Probably much worry from Republicans on that front, given that Trump, Georgia voters seem to be sending former President Trump a pretty strong message in the last year. Um, and and also control the Senate. We don't know if it comes down to Georgia, that will make a will that make a difference? Will that affect turnout? Will Republicans come out no matter what? Will Democrats come out? There are so many questions. <laughs> Alan, I saved you for last on this uh, part of the conversation because you're the political scientist among right. us. What do you make of the underperformance of Herschel Walker and how it may affect uh, the runoff? Well, I think there are a couple of things going on here. <clears throat> so uh, certainly, I mean, part of the reason that Herschel Walker uh, underperformed relative to not only Brian Kemp, but all the other statewide candidates is due to the fact that he's the only Republican candidate here who is actually running against an inc- a Democratic incumbent. And so um, I don't think we should attribute, you know, all of that shortfall to, to Herschel Walker's failings as, as, and weaknesses as a candidate, um, although certainly some of it is, is almost certainly due to that. Uh, we know that from some of the, some of the polls and exit poll data. Uh, when voters are asked about per- candidates' personal qualities, that, that Herschel Walker trails behind Raphael Warnock in, in that regard. But I think it's also the case that Raphael Warnock um, has done a pretty good job himself during his two years in office of kind of reaching out a little bit beyond the Democratic base um, and, and appealing to uh, independent uh, and swing voters and, and even a, a small number of Republicans. And that was crucial to him uh, uh, getting into this runoff. So, yes, there was more split ticket voting than we've seen in recent elections in Georgia, but I think we need to put this in perspective. There wasn't a lot of ticket split going on here, that the vast majority of voters were voting a straight party ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, But there's just enough ticket splitting and just en- enough Camp, uh, Camp Warnock voters. And, and, of course, there were almost no... Abrams Walker voters. So uh, you had nothing going in the other direction, and and that's what happened. And that happened in other other races around the country uh, as well. Um, to some extent, governors' races also. I think uh, we see, we tend to see more ticket splitting or more cross party voting uh, when it comes to voting for governor than than we see uh, in voting for Senate or House of Representatives, because in those races you're just choosing one person to lead the state. You're not, you're not making a decision about which party you want to be in, in charge of a, of a chamber of the legislature. Um, Shannon, you know, back in the uh, distant political past, oh, say 15 years ago, uh, it was fairly common for uh, campaigns to uh, go through periods where they went what we call dark on TV. They would stop their TV ad buys at a certain point in a campaign. They'd bring it back a, a matter of maybe a couple months, weeks ahead of an election. Uh, we now know that that doesn't happen anymore. People are on the air virtually endlessly, as we saw in, saw in this race. And I mention this now because this morning I already saw a Herschel Walker uh, a spot. I frankly don't know if it was a pack <laughs> ad for Walker or a Walker campaign ad. But they had bought time uh, and, and, and knew that the possibility was they were going to have a runoff and they were not taking their foot off the gas. And I wonder if the Warnock campaign is already up as well. 
You know, I don't know the answer to that on the Warnock campaign, but I will say this. Warnock was this cycle, the absolute top fundraiser in the nation among Senate races. He raised, I, I think the, the total left total we saw was about $115 million. That's just him. Um, and then additional money has been pouring into the state from groups that are, you know, left leaning and or you know, that are either attacking Walker or mm. boosting Warnock. So, you know, and and right before the end of the campaign, Warnock also did a pretty big ad buy. I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of six or seven million dollars just in the week before the campaign, um, before Election Day, rather. And so, you know, I, I think anyone who's going to be turning on a TV or checking their social media feed in the next four weeks is not going to be able to avoid uh, you know, see, seeing way too much about this mm-hmm. race. And, and it'll get even worse, uh, or it'll get more intense, I should say, depending on how the other Senate races turn out. Um, you know, if, if Georgia is, again, the, the race that determines control, you know, all bets are off. There are, Renee, and I'm coming to you on this first, because you are a native of one of the three states that now could determine the uh, uh, who's going to control the U.S. Senate, Georgia, Nevada and Nevada and your home state, Arizona. And, and to set this up, we know that in Nevada, it appears that the Republican, Adam Laxalt, at least right now, there's still a lot of votes being counted, is ahead. And in Arizona, with votes still to be counted, it's Mark Kelly, the Democrat. So if for some reason uh, the Democrats win in both of those states or the Republicans win in both of those states, Georgia's obviously race will still be important, but it won't determine the outcome of whether the Senate is Republican or Democratic. Yeah, no, that that is that's that's correct, and it's uh, very astute. I look Arizona politics has always been um, so mystifying. Uh, the 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 independent uh, streak of its identity as a state, uh, as exemplified by say former Senator McCain, he was kind of the quintessential Arizonan, right? Always went his own way, always did exactly what folks uh, thought he was going to uh, do the opposite of what folks thought he was going to do. Um, To watch Maricopa County, which is the county that Phoenix, Tempe, all that that booming Arizona populace uh, even remotely go blue is something that growing up there was just always kind of fantasy land, right? I, I actually grew up south of there in Tucson, which is very entrenched blue, in fact. And Maricopa was this, you know, brick red thing that you couldn't move. Um, the fact that we're even talking about this the way we are is just another sign of Arizona. And, you know, Georgia's this way as well, of of things changing, demographics taking hold, what, you know, folks kind of uh, understanding that they don't have to vote down the party line that they grew up voting for. So it's an interesting time in Arizona. We'll see. We'll see what happens with Carrie Lake. Uh, yeah, Carrie Lake, Alan, of course, the Republican candidate for governor who has gone all Trump in that state and who is Renee, we were all talking before the show began and Renee pointed out that Carrie Lake has declared war on the media that she used to be an integral part of (laughs) Alan. Yeah. And I think what we see um, with the Republican candidates this year in Arizona, not just Carrie Lake, but uh, masters in the the Senate race, Fincham, 
running for uh, Secretary of State is that the, the you know the far right um, election denying uh, wing of the Republican Party the the most you know, and and also Trump affiliated wing of the Republican Party is firmly in control and there's there's no room in the Arizona Republican Party right now for someone like John McCain. Um, so this is a different Republican Party in Arizona than uh, the one, you know, that we had, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. It was, that was a conservative party, no doubt. I mean, John McCain was a conservative Republican, um, but he was much more independent-minded, much more willing to work across party lines um, than the kinds of Republicans that we see in Arizona today, and, and the kind that we see in many states today. Arizona is just one example of that. And it's another example of this phenomenon of negative partisanship that you have, you know, that what we see is the, the opposition party portrayed as not just uh, an opponent, not just uh, a group of people who disagree with our policy positions and priorities, but as people who are evil uh, and who are trying to do to destroy the country. Uh, and so um, there's no excuse for ever uh, voting for a candidate from the opposition party. Emma, before we move beyond uh, the uh, runoff election in the Senate race, um, let's talk a little bit more about the dynamic that we might see unfold. By that, I mean, um, first, in terms of the ad war, uh, the Warnock campaign and the PACs that were supporting him spent millions and millions of dollars running ads that uh, uh, warned voters about Herschel Walker's uh, holding a gun to an ex-wife's head, um, having uh, uh, telling women who say that he make, uh, got them pregnant to have abortions, insisting that they do that. I mean, they threw everything they possibly could at him, and it didn't have any impact, apparently, on how close this race is. Um, where is what does the Warnock campaign do? Does it keep up that uh, theme? Is there something else they start to bring? It? It, it's just, I find it really baffling to understand. I'm talking about the ads now, not the on the stump messaging, which I'd like to talk about too. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Warnock war room is certainly discussing this as we speak. Um, however, we do know that they know exactly what it's like to run in a runoff. <laughs> so, yeah. so they have that experience going for them. But it's a it's a challenge in a runoff, especially since we we just don't know what the dynamics are in terms of the importance of motivating your base, right? And turnout in a in a runoff. That was the big hurdle for Democrats in 2020-2021 was like, oh, Republicans always win runoffs. We need to change that. We need to get our people to show up. Um, but it is very true that Senator Warnock, his campaign on, on ad airwaves and himself went on the offense in a really new way for him in the final weeks of the, of the last, of the, of the first round of this election. And, um, and as the as the results show, it's still razor thin. So, I mean, I don't know if we can say it didn't have an effect because we see this race tracking so much um, differently than than the others. But at the same time, it doesn't seem to have been enough to make a, a very definitive effect on on the final outcome. 
Shannon? Well, Emma actually said what I was just about to add, which is I do think it hasn't had an effect, uh, you know, or, you know, Herschel Walker is the only statewide Republican candidate that didn't win. Um, but but again, it is so close, um, you know, and the question is, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit is turnout. Right. Are some of those are some of those voters who voted for him going to come back out or were they just out voting for Kemp and pulled the lever for Herschel Walker as well? I mean, I think that's going to be one of the key questions. But I would argue it did have an impact, um, just not as much as the Warnock folks would have liked. Well, OK, Shannon, I, I, uh, I'm interested in that observation. I, I imagine there's some truth to that. But considering the ammunition that Democrats had to throw at, at Herschel Walker, you would have think you would th- think that it would have put him in the tank, not just brought him to a runoff with Raphael Warnock. Voters seemed to be at least a bit indifferent about all of the accusations about his past life, Shannon. I do think at a certain point, especially for sort of the hardcore Republican base, it became white noise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was real. And when I would go out and I, and I was out with him quite a bit, you would talk to voters and they either believed that it was a these charges were a creation of the media, uh, that they were lies or they believed them, but just believed he had moved on and and had, you know, gone. He, he talks a lot about his religion, that they'd been redeemed and, and moved on and been forgiven. Or they just didn't care because they wanted Republican control of the Senate. So, um, you know, I, 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 I think I think you are right. I mean, there, there was a lot of ammunition to work with and, and perhaps he should have been clobbered. But he also had this strange Donald Trump like uh, ability mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, weather this stuff. And, and some folks, you know, the more that came out on him, but the tighter they hugged him. Yeah. Alan. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I would I would emphasize the last point that Shannon made that for the large majority of voters, not just Republican voters, but Democratic voters as well, I think that uh, the Senate election is really primarily about which party do you want in charge of the Senate? Um, and the personal qualities of the candidates are secondary. Um, and if, if you're determined to vote for a Republican Senate, um, you're going to find some way of justifying that and or just ignoring whatever the information is that's coming out about about your candidate. So and, and you know, we've seen this before. And again, I, th- I think it reflects the fact that the attitude of, of the large majority of Republican and Democratic voters is that whatever faults or flaws there might be in your party's candidate, the other side is worse. Um, that, you know, uh, Herschel Walker may have uh, done some things in the past that were, you know, questionable, but that, you know, Joe, Joe Biden and Raphael Warnock are trying to destroy America as we know it. Yeah. Uh, Renee, a uh, last couple of comments before we have to get to our first break. Yeah, I, I, I just, you know, Warnock was, uh, you know, running against uh, record inflation. Uh, there was a mood out there about the pending recession. He took a lot on that. He needed that war chest, right, to combat that. What, what I wanted to, uh, to mention, just given Walker's alleged, uh, you know, history of, of uh, his, everything from depression to violence, allegedly, et cetera, uh, it's just a double standard out there that exists between male candidates and female candidates. You see 
female candidates have to be almost perfect and they slip through, they get by there. You know, it's, it's amazing the quality of, of some of the female candidates out there. You have some folks like Walker who most would agree he's never held office. He has, you know, a, a lot of things on his, his record that are questionable and he still here is there's parity in terms of voters. And it's just, it, you, you see it play out around the country. It's absolutely not fair, but it's the reality that I think exists out there. Well, all right. We have a fascinating four weeks ahead of us as we watch this runoff unfold. Uh, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and come back. Let's talk a bit about what happened in the governor's race. Uh, you're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Emory University's Alan Abramowitz, uh, Renee Alegria, uh, Mundo Now, the AJC's Shannon McCaffrey, and Axios Atlanta's Emma Hurt uh, join us. Before I get back to the conversation, um, I just wanted to uh, let you all know that uh, tomorrow, late afternoon from 4 to 6, I'm going to be leading a discussion at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University with uh, Andre Gillespie, with Michael Thurmond, and uh, Eric Tannenblatt, um, we're all going to be talking about what happened in this election today. It's an in-person event, and uh, the folks at uh, Candler uh, are really uh, delighted to invite you all. If you'd like to attend, we'd love to see you there. It's a free event. I, I posted on my Twitter a link to how you can register. Just go to at NIGUTB, N-I-G-U-T-B. Um, and again, we'd love to see you out there for that event. Okay, um, Emma? Uh, Shannon talked earlier about the fact that the polls this time around in Georgia seem to be uh, done pretty well. Uh, there was always a sense at the AJC's poll that, um, that, that Brian Kemp had a substantial lead over uh, Stacey Abrams. It, it was usually around 7-plus percent. It turned out it was basically 8 percent. And Emma, this time around— um, Abrams very she she conceded early, before the uh, the race had even been called by any of the news organizations covering it, and she did in fact uh, congratulate Brian Kemp and and acknowledge that he was uh, the winner. Yeah, it's quite a change from four years mm. ago. Um, so many things are different. Four years ago, as we know, it was ten days before she acknowledged Kemp's victory. Four years ago, the margin was fifty five thousand votes point and a half nearly. And now we're looking at a 300,000 vote margin, basically, which is, um, that's quite a swing. And um, I think Abrams's concession quickly um, relative to 2018 reflects obviously that, that uh, margin and what they were seeing in the numbers. But it does also reflect um I think that things have changed with former President Trump's 
reaction to his loss in 2020. I mean, Abrams has had to field constant questions about, you know, are you going to concede this time? How is what you said in 2018 not the same as former President Trump? And her team has fought tooth and nail against that comparison, but it's been there. And so that aura, especially in Georgia, um, was a reality. And so um, it seems like, uh, you know, there was there was going to be no room for question about her concession this time, given both the margin. And, and I think that contact with Trump is, is notable. Um, Shannon, uh, Brian Kemp ran a textbook campaign in many ways. He stayed on message. He was very narrowly focused. He didn't get caught up in Trump drama. He didn't get caught up in Herschel Walker drama. So that was in, and he's an incumbent. So those things, plus the national mood, concerns about inflation, Joe Biden's um, uh, low approval ratings in the state, Abrams from the start was facing serious headwinds in this race. Yes? Absolutely. And she had actually um, turned down an opportunity to run for the Senate um, back when Warnock ran. And, you know, you have to wonder if she regrets that decision now because, you know, things might have turned out differently. But she's always made clear that she's more interested in an executive position. She sees herself more in the role of governor or an executive than in the legislature. But, I mean, the amazing thing to me about um, Brian Kemp's win is that you know, this is someone who a couple of years ago was being lambasted by Donald Trump, who who people thought was going to, you know, really struggle with a primary challenge from the right. And then it turns out that, you know, that primary it made him stronger. He came out of that primary, you know, a stronger candidate, more appealing to moderates. I talked to a voter a couple of days ago who was a Democrat, one of the Kemp Warnock uh, voters the, the, that we've, we've heard about. This was one of them. Uh, and she said, you know, that she was a Democrat. She was voting for Warnock, did not like Walker, but she was voting for Kemp because she was so impressed that he stood up to Trump uh, and was voting for Raffensperger for the same reason. So, you know, I think he has really benefited from that clash, which would have seemed to really leave him damaged, I think has ended up really being a selling point for him. Ellen? A- absolutely. Uh, I think that for for Kemp and even more so for Raffensperger, that the fact that they stood up to Trump, uh, refused to go along with his efforts to overturn the results of the presidential election in Georgia, has really um, uh, helped them very much, Um, helped them to uh, appeal to voters, you know, beyond just the the Republican base. Uh, And so I think you saw that that both of them uh, won a considerable number of, of swing voters and, and even a modest number of Democrats compared with other Republican candidates. So, and Raffensperger actually won by an even bigger margin than uh, Kemp. So, you know, he really, he really benefited uh, in the general election from his ability, you know, his willingness to stand up. Donald Trump, um, Democrats tried very hard uh, to convince, you know, voters that, that, Standing up to Donald Trump and refusing to overturn the results of a fair election is a very low bar. Um, but never, in, but you know, in light of everything else that was happening uh, around the country, and, and the fact that lots of other Republican candidates and office holders did not stand up to Donald Trump, 
um, and were going along with his his big lie about the 2020 election, uh, just, I think, made both of them look, look good. Um, and, you know, Kemp had some other things going for him. So um, I like to say that he was a big beneficiary of the Biden economy. Now, what do I mean by that? General <laughs> perceptions of the Biden economy are pretty negative. If you just ask people, what do you think of Biden's handling of the economy? But the truth is that in many respects, the economy is very strong. Um, we have low unemployment. We have very had, had continued high job creation. Um, and, and as a result of that has been budget surpluses in Georgia and many other states. So in, a, a, an incumbent Republican governor like Brian Kemp benefits from the positive side of the Biden economy um, because this is, is happening across the country, not just here in Georgia. But at the same time, uh, governors, especially Republican governors, don't get blamed for the negative side of the Biden economy, and that's the high inflation uh, rate. Um, so actually, uh, so far in the elections this year, uh, I believe that not one incumbent governor has lost so far. Now, the Democratic incumbent in, in Nevada is trailing, um, and, and he, may, he may lose. But um, generally, incumbent governors have done very well. Uh, and that's not unusual. Uh, incumbent governors rarely lose unless there's a scandal or uh, a, a terrible uh, e economy and, and that's having a negative impact on their state. Renee, jump in. But I do want to add that Kemp also benefited from the huge infusion of money that came from the feds in the COVID relief fund, Absolutely. starting with Donald Trump, then with Joe Biden. And he was able to uh, dole out that money in a way that was politically advantageous to him. But, Renee, go ahead. Well, you, you actually saw a, a few Republican governors across the country do exactly the same thing. You saw Abbott in uh, in Texas take credit for, you know, a lot of the uh, infrastructure plans there that, uh, you know, he then touted as his own. No, they were they were part of the Biden, you know, dole out uh, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. I do think it's it, look, getting back to, to the original question, Kemp um, standing up as a Georgian and not having interference from the outside, certainly, you know, painted him as his own man. He did so with COVID, too, in that he, you know, he started to open up Georgia before even uh, Trump was almost willing to, he even said it was too soon at the, mm -hmm. at the time. And Georgia was one of the first. So, you know, there are a few things that Kemp has done that are singularly his own. I do think that all of this, though, dances around the Democrats' inability to message correctly about the economy and really point inflation into buckets as to with who and what is responsible for that out there and and stand up and say we did this these last two years there's a really strong record that biden the house and the senate can actually point to and say this is what we did and i don't think they, they effectively effectively did so um and, and yet you're taking a look at what, what what what's happening in that there's not this red wave, more like a uh, used uh, lawn water feature. That's not working right now, you know? Yeah, it's really true. Emma? And I think in, in looking at the governor's race in the last four years and how much has changed, we also have to 
be, you know, very clear about how much Stacey Abrams has changed as a candidate. Um, you know, you've talked about this on the show many times, but she's become a national celebrity. And um, and I think for it, it appears that for a lot of voters in the middle, maybe she appealed to in 2018 swing voters when when Kemp was the guy with his gun in the pickup truck. Abrams um, Abrams was able to pull those voters. And, and this year, I mean, if you look at the she's she paced behind Warnock by you know, 140 thousand votes, if my math right there is not mistaken. And and at the same time, though, she spent a lot of money. I mean, last night watching the returns come in, I had Democrats texting me about uh, someone did the math of like $61 per vote that if you look at all of her expenditures. So um, there'll be a reckoning on the on the Democratic side as people kind of study that strategy and try to figure out what went wrong. Um, and, and, and how, how it was that, I mean, even Jen Jordan got more votes than Stacey Abrams, which is really interesting. Now I also, there's weird things like Richard Woods got more votes than Brian Kemp, actually, I just noticed. So I don't know what we can read into that. Um, but, but we, we do see very clearly that Abrams paced behind Warnock. Um, Shannon, let me talk about another aspect of the Kemp victory, uh, a, a wild card. Uh, just last week, um, Dennis Ralston announced he will not run for speaker again. Uh, David Ralston. <laughs> David Ralston won't run again. Um, he's always been the kind of cooling saucer <laughs> of the Georgia House. He's, he's never been a, a radical, uh, far-right kind of guy. Uh, and, and in many ways, despite the fact that the right wing of the party has pushed him at times beyond where he wanted to go, abortion being a perfect example of that, Ralston has been able to hold the line every now and then. Now, he's going to be gone. We are likely to have a much more conservative speaker in place in the House. The House will continue to be firmly in control of Republicans and add to that the fact that um, Kemp was criticized frequently on the campaign for not really talking much about what he was going to do next time around. Uh, and so we don't know just how Republicans might try to advance a much more conservative agenda even than they have in the past with Ralston gone and Kemp no longer having to worry about a reelection campaign. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, not to date myself, but I uh, I covered Ralston way back. I covered the legislature back when Ralston was a backbencher before he became uh, before he became speaker, and he has always been a very moderate, uh, you know, person. He he kept a lot of the really extreme abortion bills from from reaching the floor. Um, you know, there was there was a. a saying that if you wanted to kind of, you know, slow a bill down, you'd you'd put it, move it to the House, like the Senate could do, you know, sort of the nuttier, socially conservative um, things that were more on the edge of uh, of the right, and, and they would kind of get a stop in the House. Um, I also think that, you know, Kemp in his, in, I believe it was the first debate, pretty much outlawed, uh, or, or ruled out, excuse me, um, doing anything additional on abortion. But then in the second debate, he meant he kind of left it open. He there's talk of an IVF bill. There's you know, there's talk of um, of, you know, some other tweaks around the edges. And, you know, it's quite possible that not having to face voters again, he may he may let the Republican uh, the Republican legislature have their way. 
Oh, by the way, Emma, before we go to a break, there's one other factor to uh, uh, include in all of this. Uh, the new lieutenant governor of Georgia is going to is Burt Jones, an election denier, someone who joined the fake slate of electors uh, for Donald Trump. Uh, and so the Senate will be in the hands of a very conservative lieutenant governor. And, of course, it will be a conservative Republican Senate, as it's been for a very long time. It is a it is going to be a really interesting dynamic in the Senate, especially because Burt Jones, as we know, you know, he was uh, he lost his committee chairmanship following the 2020 election and his involvement in pushing for a special session and the alternate elector slate. Um, and and now the tables have turned and now he's <laughs> making committee assignments. So the, the state Senate, as we know, is is already it's it's not the same kind of body as the House where one person is firmly in charge all the time. Um, so it's complicated. But, you know, it, it'll be interesting. Burt Jones, as we know, you know, he he was behind um, the most recent push to take over the Atlanta airport. He's been a, a proponent of Buckhead cityhood, which is a big change from Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. Um, at the same time, I will note that Burt Jones is the only Republican statewide candidate that I uh, could get on the record saying that he would support same-sex marriage equality. Um, so that is something that sets him apart from his uh, from his fellow Republicans. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show and come back with more on Political Rewind. Alan Abramowitz, here's a question I hope is a good one for a professor of political science. With Brian Kemp winning by about 8% of the vote, with uh, Warnock and uh, Walker in a virtual tie headed to a runoff, with all the state constitutional offices continuing to be in the hands of Republicans and other factors, what do you say about this notion that Georgia is a purple state? Is that still true? Oh, I, I think so. Um, it's not surprising that in a, you know in a midterm election year with a with a relatively unpopular Democratic president in the White House that you'd see something of a resurgence uh, of support for Republicans in a state like Georgia. Biden is somewhat less popular and appears to be somewhat less popular in Georgia than, than he is nationally. Um, so I, th- I think that as we look ahead that um, it's considering the demographic changes that are continuing in the state, um, you know, the growing share of the electorate made up of uh, non-white voters, Hispanics, uh, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, uh, who, who tend to vote Democratic. Um, when you look at the, uh, at the generational divide in the electorate, even in, in this year's election, you see that uh, Democratic candidates generally won decisively among younger voters, um, mm. uh, but that was offset by a, a strong Republican performance among older voters who made up a, l- a larger share of the electorate. But obviously, over time, we know that that's going to change. Those younger voters are going to become a growing, you know, those new generations are going to become a larger share of the electorate. So, you know, I suspect, first of all, in 2024, I think that Georgia is very likely to again be a swing state, um, that whoever the candidates are for the two parties, that we're likely to see Georgia once again in play. 
Um, and then going forward, you know, I think that Georgia is not only going to continue to be a swing state, but I think that down the road, um, perhaps eight or 12 years from now, it's likely to become a sort of blue-leaning state, um, just given the well, changes Renee, in the demographics. I apologize for interrupting you. That's well, fine. Renee, <laughs> that, brings us, that brings us to talking about the Hispanic vote. Um, we, there's a lot of talk leading up to uh, this election, and, and we talked about it on the show. You were part of it, where the Hispanic vote was headed. Republicans were uh, saying they were increasingly winning Hispanic voters. If the Hispanic population, as we know it is, is really growing and going to be an important part of Georgia's future, uh, what did this election give us as hints for where the Hispanic vote, voters are heading? I, I specifically with Georgia, the Hispanic vote hasn't has has not been appealed to by either candidate, and we are still completely in play. I think obviously the the stereotype of Latinos being just born and bred Democrats is is a fallacy, right? And you see it play out with say. DeSantis in Miami-Dade. I mean, Miami-Dade didn't flip blue this go-round. And that's something that I think a lot of folks are going to be taking a look at going forward and what's going on in Miami-Dade with respect to DeSantis. Um, There's so much. It's language. It's messaging. Neither party in Georgia is getting it right. And thereby, there's a huge upswing about who can get the Latino vote in Georgia, and it's going to make a difference, certainly with 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 the runoff. Well, one thing I do want to point out that uh, that Alan mentioned about generational voters, um, I, I was doing a little research in that last runoff when Warnock for Warnock had his other runoff. The period of time between the election and the runoff, fifty thousand new voters that had just turned eighteen voted in the runoff, 50,000 in that minuscule amount of time. There's a lot more energy in the younger vote now than there it was in 2018. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that generation with this particular runoff. Um, Chase uh, McGee and Natalie Mendenhall, the last time that Renee Alegria was on our show, he gave a, a brilliant uh, uh, description of the various Hispanic voters, how absurd it is for us to see them as a monolithic voting group. I know we created a sound uh, postcard of that, and if we can post it again, I think this is a perfect time to do that. Sorry, I know that's inside business, but I want listeners to know that that is really something worth your uh, listening to. Shannon, let's turn to the national uh, uh, scene for just a couple minutes that we have left here. the red wave never developed. As Renee said, it was a, you know, like a lawn sprinkler, a trickle. <clears throat> and here's one of the things that I think is interesting about that. We've talked over and over again about how um, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we thought early on, was going to really catapult Democrats uh, into uh, new heights in this election cycle. And we wondered as we looked at all of the polls why it wasn't registering higher. But at the same time, Shannon, a lot of panelists on this show would say, don't underestimate that it is 
a, it is an important issue that could be a big part of how people do cast their ballots. Well, the uh, exit polls, national exit polls, show that abortion was only second to the economy, 31% to 27% as the reason people voted Democratic. So, Shannon, it did turn out to have a big, big uh, impact in this race, in all of the races. Yeah, I, I, I always had a problem with polls, the way polls ask that question, right? Because you're asking, what's the most important issue to you? And, and often, you know, they had democracy on there uh, or the economy. And those are both really huge, important issues. And abortion was, was on there. But I think for many people, it maybe was second or third. Didn't mean it wasn't important, but, you know, they, they had, a tr- had trouble listing it first. Um, you know, I think what did the exit polls show here that um, I think 70 percent of, of voters uh, said it was either the single most important issue or an important issue uh, in casting their votes. That's a that's a really large number. And, you know, we talk we, talk, we I think talked about the quiet Trump voter. You know, I, I wonder if there's a quiet abortion voter, you know, people who who were thinking about this and, and uh, maybe you know, weren't willing to be quite public about how they felt about it, but went into the polls, went into the ballot, uh, excuse me, uh, the polling places and uh, and, and cast a ballot uh, that reflected their, their view on that. The flip side, if I may, real quickly, is that that didn't seem to hurt Brian Kemp, who, who signed uh, yeah. the heartbeat bill. You know, so voters, for whatever reason, were willing to have passed that for him. That's really an important point. Thank you for that. Emma, give us a last word on this. Yeah, I mean, it just it, it's interesting to look at all of the abortion related measures that were on ballots in other states and how, um, you know, across the country, they they were ended up in support for abortion rights in one way or another. Um, but I have also heard that, you know, putting it separately allowed people who maybe lean Republican to kind of split their ticket on that issue to vote Republican, but but express their um their opinion on abortion rights solely. And in Georgia, we didn't have that option. It was all rolled into one. And as Shannon mentioned, for Brian Kemp, it, it didn't it didn't weigh against a lot of voters, apparently. Allegri- uh, Renee Allegria, we're virtually out of time, but I want to ask you this. Donald Trump apparently is going to announce he's running for re- uh, election uh, next Tuesday at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, does he show up in Georgia to campaign for Herschel Walker? And if he does, what's his impact? You don't have a whole lot of time to answer that question, but give us a shot at it. I'm sure that the Warnock campaign is praying for Trump. Alan, your quick thought on that. Yeah, I think that they would very much like to see Trump stay away from Georgia, uh, but that's going to be tricky because Herschel Walker is so close to Donald Trump. So we'll have to see what yeah. happens with Trump. Mm-hmm. All right. We are completely out of time uh, uh, for uh, today's show. Uh, Emma Hurt, Shannon McCaffrey, Renee Alegria, Alan Abramowitz, thank you for a really wonderful conversation on this afternoon after the midterm election 2022. We're out of time. We're back with a brand new show uh, tomorrow at 9 and 2. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. Get a flu shot and start thinking about what the heck you're going to do as the runoff gets underway. See you all tomorrow, everybody.